Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And my name is Brian Colbert Kennedy. Want to do the next part? Sure. This is the podcast <laughs> where we dive into a specific topic or question affecting everyone on the planet right now or in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. If it can kill us or turn us into uh, Inspector Gadget, so good. Uh, we are in. Question. Yeah. We're not going to go down this rabbit hole. Okay. Did Inspector Gadget choose to be that way, or did he was he injured in a war all over? Was right. he born that way and needed those uh, mechanical appendages? I don't know. I don't know. Let's talk about it during fun talk. Yeah, that's great. Very okay, interesting. Great. Um, Anyways, our guests are scientists, doctors, engineers, politicians, astronauts, uh, reverend ones, and mm-hmm. more. Uh, uh, and we all work together toward action steps that our listeners can take with their voice their vote, and their dollar. Mm-hmm. This is your friendly, such a friendly reminder that you can send questions, thoughts, and feedback, any of those, all of those, to us on Twitter at importantnotimp, or you can email us, um, that's what adults do, mm-hmm. not the kids as much from what I understand, nah. at funtalk at importantnotimportant.com. Uh, you can also join thousands of other smart people and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter comes out Fridays at varying times, depends on when <laughs> I have time to finish it, at importantnotimportant.com. This week's episode is talking about how states are going to save everything Mm -hmm. and who's helping us to get those states back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Our guest is Catherine Vaughn, uh, another one of the cabal of ladies out there who should, I don't know what the word is for like a collective dictatorship. Right. Hmm. I don't know. Um, At least for a while, they should have that. (laughs) <laughs> uh, until we supporting they uh, get everything sorted. And as, as she so eloquently pointed out, um, we'll get into back on the right track uh, to an even better place, not to where we were, because that's what got us here. Yeah, that was really, uh, really excellent uh, way to, to to say what she said. That was cool. Anyways, great one. Really excited about it. Yeah. Um, and um, she's got some shit to say because she's got some elections coming up. Yep. So let's go support her. Let's do it. Our guest today is Catherine Vaughn, and together we're going to ask, uh, is climate change slash cancer slash clean energy slash artificial intelligence, is it flippable? Are those things flippable? Catherine, welcome. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for putting up with us. <laughs> this is just the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Thank yeah, you in advance. Already. Very happy to have you here, Catherine. Uh, let's just get started by um, letting everybody know who you are and what you do. Quick little intro. Sure. So I am a co-founder and the CEO of Flippable, which is an organization dedicated to flipping state governments from red to blue. Um, We were founded in the wake of the 2016 elections when a lot of progressives finally woke up to the fact that we had really disinvested in the down ballot level, which led to all sorts of consequences up ballot including, uh, you know, total voter suppression in states that were really critical to electing Trump um, and uh, gerrymandering that led us to a really uh, to imbalance in the House. Um, so we uh, started this organization in 2016. The goal was to help people understand the role of state government and state policy in pretty much everything that affects our lives, um, and then to crowdfund for candidates running in the most flippable states and the most flippable districts in those states to help us get back to progressive majorities. I like it. Awesome. Um, and from what I understand, I don't know if the history books are telling it to us straight, but uh, this began over very sad drinks on the night of the election. Is that sound about right? <laughs> yeah. So I had been uh, working on the Hillary campaign in Ohio, actually. Um, and that's where I oh, met no. my, my future co-founders. 
And uh, we decided to have, you know, one last drink as a team and then started talking about everything we'd seen on the ground from total misinformation about uh, election precincts that were basically suppressing the vote um, on the ground to all sorts of other policies and, and laws on the books that had uh, just made our democracy less democratic uh, and thought about how many states were, uh, you know, in the same circumstances and had fallen to Republicans as a result. Yeah, well, uh, that's I'm, I'm glad you had that conversation because clearly yeah. you guys have made a difference. Whatever those drinks were, um, let's get more of them. Um, <laughs> and, lucky uh, you know, it's it's essential. And this is one of the reasons I wanted uh, to talk to you guys, besides obviously the effect you've had is is as as fantastic as the Obama administration was and the huge machines behind both of those elections. Um, we did a hell of a job taking our foot off the pedal uh, in down ballot stuff for 10 years, and it has just come back to bite us in the ass. So Absolutely. it's it's exciting to to have people actually focusing on it. All yeah. right. Awesome. Yeah. Brian, tell, tell her what's going on here. All right, Catherine, here's the deal. We're going to uh, go over some quick context so that everybody knows uh, you know, what we're talking about and why we're talking about it. Most and... of our listeners are driving and texting, so we'd prefer if they're not <laughs> Wikipedia stuff exactly. while, uh, while they're doing that. Saw a bunch of that on my way this morning. And then, uh, yes, we'll do that. And then, uh, you know, what we want to do here is get into some action-oriented questions uh, that um, that get to the heart of, of um, why we should care about uh, everything that we're going to talk about. Is that all right? Great. All right, Catherine. We, we like to kick it off with one important question here, which I'm mm-hmm. sure you know is coming, mm-hmm. which is really just a bummer. <laughs> um, instead of saying, tell us your life story, though, I'm, I'm curious how you got to where you are, but we can dig into that. We'd like to ask, Catherine, why are you vital to the survival of our little species we've got going on here? <laughs> All right. I will admit that I cheated. Um, <laughs> I like to do my homework. So I listened to a couple episodes beforehand. Um, and I think this is a great question. Um, so I thought about it a little bit. I think that there are people who are led by the, the head and there are people who are led by the heart. Um, and then a lot of people on your podcast are led by both. And I think that's really important. Um, so, you know, the people who are led by the head, they love solving difficult problems, but in some ways they can be overachievers for the sake of overachieving. Um, I went to business school. I worked at McKinsey for a few months before <laughs> coming to the, <laughs> to the bright side. And there were a lot of people there who were so smart, um, but it was kind of amoral. Like they were like, okay, well, I just want to do really well and and make a lot of money and I want to be solving important or like solving interesting problems. And then, you know, on the other hand, I worked in the nonprofit world for about five years before business school um, and working in politics too. And I think there are a lot of people who are led by the heart and they just really care, but sometimes they don't care about doing that work effectively. And I don't think that applies to everyone, but you know, we've all been to a charity fundraiser where people are just like, oh, this sounds so great and I'm helping the world. And then you kind of dig mm-hmm. into the organization and you're like, are you really doing effective work. Yeah. Like you, you want your money and your resources and your time to be spent really effectively. And I think what makes me different from those types of people, although I'm not alone, is really like caring so much about an issue um, that you want to do it as effectively as possible. Like I think, you know, when you are led by both your head and your heart, um, you understand that to make a real difference in the world, you have to be rigorous, you have to be efficient, effective, you have to be impact driven. Um, and I think that that combination, it, it means that sometimes I feel a little weird in whatever circumstance I'm in. Like in business school, I was always like the like hippie, like let's save the world person. And, you know, in my nonprofit yes. world, sometimes I'm like the corporate type, but like, 
you know, I think being able to bridge both of those worlds and, and translate a little bit and, and work to combine them is really important. Yeah. And I mean, I guess that speaks to how, where you uh, dabbled in McKinsey, right, is, is, is efficiency and, and, and measuring impact. You know, I don't think anybody just accidentally ends up at a place like that. You, there, there's got to be a certain right brain to it. Does that, does that yeah. fit? Yeah, totally. And, you know, I, I uh, went to business school after several years in the nonprofit sector, really wanting to round out my skill set with some pretty, you know, hard skills in analysis and, um, and finance and, and kind of like your your business skills so that I could be more effective in the social sector. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was a really kind of deliberate decision to be able to speak both languages. Um, but it is, yeah, it is hard to be around people who, you know, aren't necessarily tuned into all of the same problems that you're really focused on. Sure. Sure. Well, we're, we're happy and, and glad to have you. It's like, uh, Never mind. I was going to make an Avengers joke, but I don't know if oh. I, can, I, I don't know if we can. We don't need to push it. If it comes up organically, great. No, I, no, but I, it's not that you. Oh. You wanted to make it about me not making the joke. I was doing it in the sense of not having a spoiler. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just right. saying, Catherine is like the Captain Marvel showing up when all the boys have the white guys have yes. failed. Yes, yes, <laughs> and she saves the day. She so, really. Did I save have the to day. admit, I I don't speak superhero movie. I know. That. I feel like no that's maybe to me on this podcast. But. <laughs> <sighs> Look, we're just I, used to say, I used to say I haven't seen any movies that have the word man in the title, like Superman, <sighs> Batman, Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. um, you know, it's just part of my feminist philosophy. That's, it. that's great. But Captain Marvel does not have <laughs> that word. That's true. That's she's, true. She's fantastic. <laughs> Wonder Woman. I mean, I guess it's got man in Wonder there, Woman, but yeah, it's, technically. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't I need to Wonder Woman. <laughs> it's pretty great. Um, all right. Look, uh, we, I, I mentioned offline, we don't need a ton of context this week. Usually it's like, Hey, this is, uh, how cancer works or why a hurricane does what it does. We, we don't need to do that. Look, everyone who's listening to this is listening for a reason, which is, you know, our listeners are, are like the slightly nerdier pod save America listeners. The, they know why they're here. They know what we're dealing with, right? The, the presidency is, is, is fucked. The administration is, is almost literally at this point, comically corrupt, uh, the, the Senate is like a Star Wars type Senate at this point, uh, just doing <laughs> terrible things. Mitch, M- Mitch McConnell is, like, uh, is going down in history books as a supervillain. Somebody made a great point on Twitter the other day. There's a picture of him and they said, uh, every picture of Mitch McConnell is like, uh, when the villain, the doors are closing with the villain behind <laughs> them and like the, and the deadly gas is about to fill uh-huh. the room. It's just like every picture. Ugh. Um, anyways, they're, they're confirming, crazy right-wing judges at a truly insane rate, but we did get back the house and that matters. And we had a hell of a lot of progress uh, in the States, N- not as much as we wanted or hoped for, but, but certainly more than we've had in, in a decade and also mm-hmm. on the local level. So, you know, the question is, you know, who is driving all this change? Again, we, we already talked to Amanda Littman from run for something and it's, it's fantastic what they're doing there. And they're really digging down on the very local level as well um, down to city council and things like that. School boards, um, the, the point is you can have effect anywhere, but today we've got you, Catherine, uh, who, who is pulling a separate, but equally compelling and vitally important set of strings, which is bringing the States back from the dark side and hopefully saving the planet along the way. So, um, <laughs> again, our question is, is like, 
are all of the things that, that we talk about here that we feel like, look, there's so much important shit going on in the world and, and every day feels like there's a new national crisis. And there is, but there's certain things that have a huge ticking clock that are going to affect everyone uh, that are, like we say, sort of existential-ish. And the question is, is, is how, how can the states affect those? And I think we've seen over the past year and a half that they really can. So let's get everyone up to, to speed if you could, because we like to look forward, but it does matter to say where we've been there. So since you guys put this together, we've had one huge midterm election with a bunch of other statewide elections thrown in for, for good measure. And some things have changed uh, considerably and some have gotten worse. I mean, you look at what's happening in, 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 uh, in, in Alabama and Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, look, if there's one thing I think we can say for the GOP, it's that they do, they, they do not fuck around, right? They know that if we <laughs> keep making progress, for instance, if, these million and a half ex-felons in Florida actually do get to vote, they might never get some of these legislatures and states back. On the other mm-hmm. hand, uh, for us, if they get to redraw the maps after 2020, it's all over. Like, Ugh. lights out, right? So mm-hmm. get, get us up to speed if you could. What's the, what's the current situation? Where do we make progress? And where are you aiming your efforts over the next year and two years? Totally. So as you alluded to before, we lost a ton of seats at the state level during the Obama administration, really mostly in the 2010 midterms, which were just a bloodbath for Democrats. Um, And what that meant, because a lot of states were, you know, Democrats actually had more majorities at the state legislative level in 2009 than Republicans did. And that completely flipped in 2010. Uh, 2010 was a really critical year because it was a year before uh, the last round of redistricting and redistricting the maps that are drawn persist for the next 10 years. And so and even when those maps are challenged based on gerrymandering, whether racial gerrymandering, which is plainly unconstitutional or partisan gerrymandering, which is being debated in the Supreme Court, um, that can take literally eight or nine years <laughs> to get resolved. We're seeing Jeez. these cases um, out of Wisconsin, out of North Carolina, out of Virginia that are coming to the court to this year in 2019, literally you know, eight years after the maps were drawn. Right. So, um, so to your point, it's really important that we act now um, before the census in 2020 and the next round of redistricting um, to... Uh, get back to some level of balance and ideally to progressive majorities, not so we can like turn around and just draw really unfair maps that favor Democrats, but so that we can actually uh, implement, you know, independent uh, committees that that decide on the maps and actually get to a, a place of uh, parity. Um, you know, I mm-hmm. heard some Democrats uh, who work with the NDRC, um, like Eric Holder's group, talking about how we don't need to you know, rig the maps. We just need an equal playing field. And then we'll actually win <laughs> because you know, the trends are in our favor. Um, you know, we consistently win the popular vote. We consistently win a majority of votes at the state level. So I think you know, as a lead into some of your questions that are more specifically about kind of the future of the species and, and science questions, I think that there's also a question of how do our electoral systems and voting systems work and who decides that. And that all happens at the state level. So we, you know, in the 2018 midterm cycle, uh, we made a lot of progress at the state level, but we had gotten to a point of such huge um, 
disadvantages compared to Republicans in terms of like the margins, the number of seats that we need to win in each of these state houses and state senates. Um, and the Republicans had gerrymandered across dozens of states. So we didn't win outright majorities in tons of states, but we did in states like New York, where the state Senate was actually controlled by Republicans until this past year. In states like Colorado, where the state Senate Republican controlled, um, New Hampshire, um, and Minnesota, where we, Minnesota is the only state now that actually has a split legislature where, where one chamber is controlled by Republicans and the other by Democrats. And that's kind of a just an indication of how polarized things are getting. Um, and in Washington state, where a special election in 2017 helped us um, attain the majority there and then pass some really critical laws on automatic voter registration, pre-registration for 16 and 17 year olds, um, a state voting rights act and that sort of thing. So we're making ground in states that we might call usual suspects, like the states that we already saw were trending blue. Um, and then we also made some pretty significant gains in states like Texas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, in Virginia in 2017, we picked up 15 seats and came within one seat of the majority in the House of Delegates. Um, so these are states yeah, that, you know, that's my home we'll state. And I mean, I could not be more proud of how that went. And then how bad last year went uh, just with, with some of the idiots that were in office. Um, but that yeah. was incredible what happened there. I mean, if you told if you'd said 10 years ago that Virginia was going to effectively flip blue, I mean, no one would have believed you. Exactly. And that led to the passage of Medicaid expansion in Virginia, which gave uh, health care, health coverage to 100,000 Virginians. Um, we didn't even win a majority in Virginia, but Republicans saw the writing on the wall. They right. saw that all of these Democrats had been campaigning on Medicaid expansion and it was you know, hugely popular. Um, and so you can see even when you don't win a majority, obviously, that's what we prefer. <laughs> but even when you don't win <laughs> sure. one... Um, you know, representatives will feel that they need to be accountable um, when they have a huge advantage in a chamber they're not necessarily going to act. Yeah, and it's true. I mean, and it, it, it's 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 two things, really. You know, it, I mean, the Virginia case, uh, I'm biased, of course, but um, it really goes to show you, literally, I mean, it came down to one vote, and then it was, what did they do? They pulled a name out of a hat, right? Ugh, For the last crazy. Seat, uh, which was crazy. But like you said, it, they saw the writing on the wall. We didn't need the majority. Of course, that would have been nice. And we could do so much more, like fix all their voting re registration issues there. <laughs> but shit, one vote got 400,000 people uh, health insurance. It's, it's just incredible. So it does matter and it does make a difference. And especially with things like health insurance. And we've seen with Obamacare, which is not perfect, but God, I mean, what a difference it made is you cannot give people health insurance, let them have it for a year, few years and then try to take it away because they know now what the other side looks like. And, and if we can make those gains, if we can make those differences, you know, these guys that are trying to take away fundamental human rights or tell you, you know, oh, the market version is better, this and this, they're never going to win again. Because once you've had it and you understand what it's like to go to a doctor in a preemptive fashion right. uh, oh and take proactive care of yourself, it's a game changer. Or or for your friend, you know, your loved one who who has a pre-existing condition that is that has never been able to have insurance before. And now they've had it and they've had it for six years and you're going to go tell them they can't. Yeah, Holy sorry. shit, you're not going to get that boat. You know, because you're now you're fucking with people's health. Yeah. And that matters to us a lot because we look at so many of these red states where there's power plants in the districts of these uh, underprivileged folks and, and heavily minority 
areas and, and children's asthma is twice as bad as a national average. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's cardiovascular issues and you're just going like, well, they also don't have health insurance because you won't let them health insurance. It's just, it's crazy. So it's gross. Um, interesting. Okay. So where are you really looking over the next year? There's obviously some stuff going on in 2019 and then obviously 2020 is the big one. So mm-hmm. what, what are your, what are your make or break places? Yeah. So we're going back to Virginia. Virginia mm-hmm. is having elections at the state Senate and house of delegates level this year. Um, mm-hmm. Nothing at the top of the ballot, which given everything going on in Virginia is probably a plus. Oh, so, Jesus. Um, yeah. But, you know, these are the elections that really matter in the state Senate and the state House. We're just two seats away from flipping to a progressive majority. Um, so we want to go back and uh, finish the job with the Virginia voters who, you know, turned out in droves in 2017. Um, because there's no uh, gubernatorial election or, or statewide elections, um, we're, we're facing, you know, turnout challenges. And there's, you know, we're in the process of interviewing candidates about to announce our our slate of Virginia candidates for the year. And they're incredible. Um, what we're hearing from them, we're hearing a ton about uh, climate change and environmental issues, coastal flooding, all sorts of, uh, you know, local impact um, of change issues that they're campaigning on. So, you know, to kind of preempt some of the topics that we'll, we'll talk about, um, that's, mm-hmm. that's a huge issue for Virginia. Um, and then, of course, Virginia is a culprit in uh, partisan gerrymandering and racial gerrymandering. And so oh, yeah. um, we really need to be able to flip the legislature to get fair maps in 2021. So our campaign for Virginia is called Flip It Fair. <laughs> um, I love it. Flip yeah. It Fair. Yeah. And then going forward in 2020, we're, we're revisiting a lot of states that we did work in in, in the 2018 midterm cycle. Um, Texas was a state where we saw huge gains. It's trending blue. Um, we think that we can flip more seats in the state house. Uh, North Carolina, similar situation. Florida, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, we just uh, helped flip a, a state Senate seat in a special election. And so now we just have three more seats to flip. Uh, so, you know, a lot of gains were made in these states. And again, it's kind of a, an issue of uh, finishing the job and making sure that before redistricting, we're in a really good place. Um, I love it. And, and like you said, we can, you know, start to, to dig into it, but it's easy if you're not part of one of these states to think like, oh, uh, I mean, I think people see how much it matters because there's such an uproar over, you know, what's happening in like uh, with women's health in Alabama and Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, but and you look and you're like, oh, that's great that people in Virginia got 400 uh, yeah, you know, Medicaid kicked in and things like that. But, you know, again, through our prism, you look at it and go, well, it's also the home to the largest naval base on the planet, mm-hmm. which is going to be fucking underwater in 25 years. So that's everybody's problem, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and, and flipping that house makes a huge difference. Um, it's the shipbuilding, it's the naval base, it's, it's everything down there. And, and everywhere has maybe not something exactly like that, but so many states are having issues like that, you know, as much as everyone, you know, said, oh, it's going to be sea level rise on the coast and this and this, you know, you look at the middle of the country and the flooding and it's just like, oh my God, like what have, what have we done? And, and, and so many of those places are red states and, and the only way to take action because the federal government won't is on the state level. Exactly. And that's, that's, I think states are always important, um, whether or not we have a federal government that's advocating for us. But Mm -hmm. I think especially when the federal government is actively working against our interests, you know, if you have 
democratically led states, you can actually see things get done. And sorry, I'm being super partisan here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, no, no, please, please, no problem. <laughs> jump, jump in. Um, the water is warm. Sometimes I talk to, you know, like people in the nonprofit sector where you have to be like super nonpartisan. So I probably should have clarified that before. But uh, when you have oh, no, no. progressive policy at the state level, you have, a, you know, these states that are um, making their own, uh, you know, agreements on greenhouse gas uh, emissions reductions. You have um, states like California that, you know, it's like the, what, the sixth largest economy in the world um, making legitimate commitments to, uh, you know, helping curb climate change when our federal government is is doing the exact opposite. Um, you have states that can, you know, pass more progressive legislation on things like reproductive rights, on gun control, um, on and, and thinking about long-term investments too. You know, when you think about who is going to solve these problems at a scientific level, like we need well-educated, well-fed students <laughs> who actually can go to school and uh, and, and learn. And I think um, that all happens at the state level. So we have a lot of alums who are really thinking long-term about making investments in, in public education, in infrastructure, um, in things like uh, school breakfast programs and mental health resources in schools. And so, you know, you kind of see how this all comes together in a really you know, looking at both the short term and the long term, um, and also in a really kind of intersectional way, thinking about how these different issues intersect um, to be able to position students and families in these states to to succeed. Yeah. All right. So let's, you started to, you know, as you started to dig into, we look into everything uh, through the prism of, you know, uh, uh, will this do catastrophic damage to the species or upgrade all of us, not just rich people, you know, into super robots, uh, you know, climate change, clean energy, uh, tech and jobs, cancer treatments, affordable immunotherapy, AI, um, fewer but more effective antibiotics. It, it goes on and on. But let's keep going with with climate change. The the federal government has not only, you know, completely abandoned their responsibility to, to slow climate change, but are actually digging like a far deeper hole. Uh, uh, it's like helping the aliens in Independence Day or, or uh, right. in Alien or mm-hmm. Aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of alien movies. It just doesn't, it doesn't add up. It, any of the movies. Um, yeah, but, but many states and cities uh, have banded together and, and to take up the cause. So, t- you know, tell us about where the, uh, the existential threat of, of our time falls on your radar and, and on your candidate's radar. Hmm. I think... Yeah, I mean, I think that it definitely falls on our candidates' radar. Um, we were asking some of our candidates about, you know, you know, environment is your biggest issue. Like, how do you talk about that with your constituents? How do you make that real? And they were like, we don't need to make it real. People's backyards and homes are flooding. You know, people yeah. are dealing with this every day. Um, so I think that that is a, you know, in Florida, we saw that with the uh, allergy problems and, and all sorts mm-hmm. of environmental problems that weren't being addressed. In Virginia, we're seeing it with coastal flooding. We're seeing wildfires in the West. Like These are issues that are already touching people. And so when you have candidates that actually listen to their constituents rather than, say, corporations and are um, you know, hearing their concerns and integrating them to their messaging and their policy, um, that becomes a, a really natural issue. So environment has been consistently you know, in our top three issues across all sorts of different states. Nearly every candidate in Michigan that we had in Michigan last year mentioned Flint. Um, uh-huh, you know, sure. so this is, this is kind of a, a very salient issue for people. You know, on my radar, I think I look at some of these policies in states like Florida that's completely Republican uh, controlled right now, even though 
the state, especially after the passage of Amendment 4, and especially if Amendment 4 were able to be implemented fairly and, and kind of restore the vote to former felons, um, you know, this is a state that leans blue. <laughs> um, this is a yeah. state where democratic policies are in the interest of, of Floridians. Uh, so that really concerns me there. But then I look at a state like um, Pennsylvania, which has a Democratic governor, unfortunately, to Republican, uh, the Republican state Senate and uh, state House. Um, but Pennsylvania just, you know, announced, uh, or Tom Wolf, the governor, announced carbon goals for 2050, um, which amounted to an 80% reduction in emissions. And Pennsylvania is the third largest greenhouse gas emitting, emitting state. So that those sorts of mm-hmm. commitments really could make a difference. Um, so I, you know, I see existential threats being addressed <laughs> in very different ways in states. And, you know, I used to get very, in, like, irrationally indignant during all the healthcare stuff in 2010, which was like, oh, these motherfuckers clearly don't have a relative with a pre-existing condition, right. and that's why they're fighting it. Like, if you are at all close to this, you, would, you, you have to acknowledge as a human being that what you're doing is not okay. And, and I've also, you know, definitely at times, like, gotten very righteous and shitty about that with climate change, which is like, you look at what a holy hotbed of mess like North Carolina has been the past 10 years. But I mean, the, you know, from, from the courts to to the districts to everything, it's a nightmare. But I I think they're finally realizing, and a lot like Miami is uh, in Florida, you know, you look at their top tourism area, which is the outer banks there is going to be gone. And they're already seeing so much rain. uh, What are they called? Sunny day flooding. Which is yeah. just like, it's already happening. You don't have to wait for that one hurricane, you know, every, on average, like every 18, 24 months that does serious damage there. You get plenty of rain stuff, but you're seeing the sunny day flooding, flooding, and everyone's realizing like, oh, that's the economic engine that's just going to go bye-bye. Mm-hmm. And and when it does, you're fucked. And, and it feels like the same thing with Florida, like you said, like, if those ex-felons are able to vote, they're not going to get the uh, GOP will like not get that state back. Um, and they're aware of it, which is why they're doing what the fuck they're doing this month. But at the same time, they recognize like, Oh my God, there's, there's, there's so much going on here. Like, you know, Miami has started to prepare, but their biggest power station is like on the coast. Like there, there are so many issues that are just, it's like new Orleans where you just go, what, what can we do at some point, you know, which is not a lot. So, so you have to, and this is where I meant with the healthcare thing. It's just, People are flying. We're finally seeing these things, you know, and and the same thing in California, which is always billed as being pretty progressive. But we have some, you know, pretty, pretty red areas as well. Now, obviously, not nearly as many uh, until they burn. And and now they're just burning and you can't miss that. And we blow through our, uh, you know, you want to talk about uh, budgets and not having spending. And then we blow through our wildfire budget by April. And, and you realize like, oh, the, it's a paradigm shift everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're we're actually starting to see that. And it's terrible, but you hope it goes, oh, well, now maybe we'll, people will get their shit together. Um, yeah, I think t- that could be a way of getting, sorry, I think that could be a way no, of getting no. Republicans on board is, is to actually draw the connection between environmental issues and the economy. Because I, I, I think, you know, that's something that our candidates have mentioned that some of their Republican colleagues in the state house may not want to um, ag- admit that climate change is, is human is man-made, but they will be responsive if it's threatening the largest industry in the region. You know, if tourism right. is being threatened, um, you know, maybe there are ways to kind of reach across the aisle and get Republicans on board with solutions. Um, it's 
crazy and idiotic that they won't acknowledge the source of the problem because you often need to know that before you can craft a good solution. Um, but at least it's a start. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's terrible, but you know, you look at what happened in Houston with the hurricane too. It, you just hope it makes people take a step back a little bit and go, holy shit. Like this, this is, this yeah. thing is real now and we're so unprepared in, in so many ways, whether it's been paving over wetlands or, you know, where you look in New York and you just go, everything's at sea level. Good luck. Mm. Like the mm -hmm. next Sandy's going to come and you can put up walls and they've proposed these, you know, insane things. And people just go like, yeah, but what, a, it's just going to go over those. Like right. it's, it's, we're, we're going to have some shit to deal with, but hopefully it spurs people into action. Let's talk about good news though. Uh, Clean energy and clean energy jobs are so on the up and up, right? We we try to actually give it very fair coverage and we, we try desperately not to talk about just bad news because there's right. so much amazing stuff happening with clean energy and cancer and things like that. But it's not enough. We are doing so well. Wind and solar prices are dropping at truly ludicrous rates the past five years, even more so battery storage costs, which was the big question. Everybody goes, oh, but the sun doesn't shine at night. What are we going to do? Yeah. It's like batteries are down something like 80% in the past 18 months, which is crazy. Um, now it's just the technology of actually making batteries more efficient and having more storage. Wind power technician is, if not the number one, is one of the fastest growing jobs in the country. Solar installer as well. Where do clean energy jobs factor in uh, when, when you guys are picking candidates or they're coming to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is one of those kind of intersectional questions that comes up a lot. Obviously, jobs are a major issue for tons of voters and mm -hmm. uh, and climate is as well. And so when you can put together a policy that, you know, solves both problems at once, that's always great. Sure. Um, yeah. I, we see a lot in, in Colorado. So we helped flip the Colorado State Senate last year. Um, which was just one seat away from democratic control. Um, you know, Colorado has been a huge leader in clean energy jobs um, and in environmental policy over the past decade or so. Um, and so, you know, really being able to build on the successes and, and kind of have an aligned and non-gridlocked government to keep building on them is, was really important to our candidates. And one of the things that one of our candidates mentioned was, you know, when you look at a state like California, if you're in the middle of the country, a California type policy seems ludicrous. It doesn't seem like that's something that you can bring to your state. But she was saying mm -hmm. Colorado being in the middle of the country can become, you know, the California of, <laughs> of the West. She would never put it oh, that way yeah. because she's a proud <laughs> Coloradan. But right, she was right, saying, right. you know, other states can then look to Colorado and, uh, you know, say this is an implementable policy. This isn't too far off. And so I thought that was really interesting, just that like, you know, maybe certain states are seen as, you know, by like a median voter in the Midwest as kind of crazy and far off and that policy would never work here. But as you see more Midwestern states kind of chip away at those illusions and actually show that it can work anywhere, um, that you can have a combination of clean energy jobs, um, labor protections, uh, you know, right. and uh, environmental reform. I think that, you know, you start seeing a completely different paradigm of how, how we can be doing things, even in states that have a long history of, of employment in some of the more kind of polluting and uh, not clean sectors. Hey guys, it's Quinn. If you're listening to this, you obviously like podcasts. And you probably like music too. On Spotify, you can listen to all of that in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can download episodes to listen to offline wherever you might be. 
and you can easily share what you're listening to with your friends via Spotify's integrations with social platforms like Instagram. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now. You can just search for Important Not Important on the Spotify app or browse podcasts in the Your Library tab. Very convenient. And of course, you can follow us so you never miss an episode of Important Not Important. Uh, Spotify is the world's leading music streaming service, and now it can be your go-to for podcasts, too. I love the the metaphor there of of the Colorado plan building on the California plan, but kind of owning it as a Colorado plan and what that actually means for other states who could never sell their houses and legislatures, much less their voters, unlike implementing a California plan, but maybe a Colorado plan. Oh, yeah. Because that's a little more reachable. It doesn't sound like it's as, right as green and, and fucking fruity as California. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's not all like wheatgrass shots. It's like, oh, Colorado's doing it and they're kind of hip and, and, and yeah. but, but they're still real people as opposed to <laughs> everyone out here. Uh, that matters, you know, and, and of course, admittedly, that's one of the things that Democrats have just been horrendous about for 25 years is is literally marketing, you know, mm-hmm. the, from the contract for America, the GOP just blows us out the door every time, whether it's just on organizational efforts or for the actual marketing. Um, but that that does matter to to get people to to uh, to get on board. I mean, it's it's, you know, part of the reason Obama went on between two ferns to sell right to sell health care. Right. Is is just trying to connect with people in in a more effective way than we really ever have. Yeah, pretty important. Weird, huh? <laughs> <sighs> um, totally. <laughs> so clearly, you you uh, uh, are just kicking butt everywhere. Uh, I barely had time to catch your breath, but uh, there must be some some setbacks. Yeah, some some obstacles, some places where you guys have gotten uh, uh, out punched. You talk to us about that. Totally. A little bit? Yeah. I mean, it's funny the night of the midterms last year was so bittersweet for us. Um, obviously we were thrilled, uh, that, you know, progressive flipped, progressives flipped the house. Um, and we were thrilled to see progress in a lot of the key states that we were focused on. Um, but I think it was really hard to see, uh, the losses in Florida, um, mm-hmm. especially given the passage of amendment four, we were kind of like, we needed amendment four, um, I don't know, right. always, but, uh, it would have been <laughs> nice to have had that passed before, um, the election to get, you know, someone like Andrew Gillum or Bill Nelson elected. Um, mm. I think Wisconsin was really tough. Uh, we had targeted four seats in the state Senate. It was just two seats away from flipping and we didn't win any of them, um, despite seeing some pretty impressive special election victories before. Um, and when you look back at some of the gerrymandering in Wisconsin, you know, the maps kind of tell the story um, in the state house. Uh, I think Democrats won 54% of the vote, but only got 37% of the seats. Um, so, you know, wow. it, it's just the maps are drawn against us. And I think we came up against some of those really important and kind of heartbreaking uh, barriers that are keeping us from from being able to, you know, win what is rightfully ours and implement the policies that we want. Um, I think, you know, we didn't work in Georgia last year, but seeing Stacey Abrams lost was heartbreaking. Um, yeah. or I, I won't call it a loss. Seeing it be stolen from her was was really tough. I, I just um, Someone you know. put a newspaper or, or article headline the other day that says, Stacey Abrams just won't give up. She still claims she won. I'm like, listen, motherfucker, Ugh. I can't even begin. with. <laughs> I mean, it, it's incredible. That's I mean, other maddening. countries must look at, I mean, our country in general, but looking at the election must, just must be like, oh my God, what has happened? 
Yeah. Ugh, I mean, elections are literally being stolen from us all the time, um, as they have been like throughout most of history. Um, but, but I think that the, maybe the silver lining there is that there is a huge shift in progressives attention to issues around elections and voting. And people are beginning to understand that in order for us to actually to not have to like give up our whole lives for an entire election cycle to try to win claw back what's ours, maybe we could actually invest in, um, you know, fair voting laws, uh, you know, like something like HB1. (laughs) You know, I think that we're finally starting to think about voting rights and um, and redistricting in a different way um, from how we had before. So I think that's the silver lining is that someone like Stacey Abrams throughout her entire career has been drawing attention to this issue. And in even in the election, you know, her having the election stolen from her was such a, you know, important, um, important learning moment for everyone. It's just heartbreaking that we didn't learn it sooner. So where, where can you guys admit that not just have there been obstacles, but, but maybe you guys uh, could have done better and and how are you applying that going forward? Sure. Yeah. So I think one of our lessons from 2017 was, um, never to underestimate how big the blue wave can be. So we supported five candidates in 2017. And the thinking was, you know, we want to just zero in um, our dollars. Like we're a grassroots organization. We're not, you know, a a mega pack with, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars. So we wanted to kind of start small and focus. Um, And what we saw was that 15 seats flipped. (laughs) And so we Mm -hmm. kind of walked away from that thinking, wow, like we need to target every possible seat that could be flippable, um, you know, true to our name. And we need to think about this as a whole team approach because we saw our candidates working together with everyone who was challenging a Republican and trying, you know, everyone who's trying to flip their district and other Democrats who had been in office before. Um, and so this year, going back to Virginia, we are thinking, you know, thinking with a greater sense of possibility about what can flip. Um, we're trying to kind of support the whole team. We're seeing some of our alums, um, you know, help new candidates who are running for the first time and sharing their experiences with them and supporting them, um, which is really heartening to see. And so we're trying to support that effort. Um, I think another lesson that we really want to take forward is this idea that you can't only invest in candidates. You also need to invest in communities and in voters themselves. Um, and there are a lot of really good organizations on the ground doing direct voter organizing work uh, to help register new voters, to uh, you know get people out to vote, and not in a transactional way that's like, okay, well, vote for a Democrat because you know that's def- that's definitely going to be better for you than a Republican, <laughs> but in a real um, like in in the spirit of investment, of investing in communities and listening to them because we care about them. And, and so I think that's a really important lesson that I think all Democrats need to take to heart, which is that, yeah, of course, we're better than the alternative, but that's not good <laughs> enough. Um, right. And I think, you know, like it's insulting to a lot of communities of color to suggest that, you know, oh, well, you just have to vote for a Democrat because otherwise literally your lives will be threatened. Right. Um, and, you know, and we've seen that like even under Democrats, um, you know, like communities are still really vulnerable and um, and not protected. So I, I think that's a really important message. And we've we've tried to do a lot of messaging around building a better democracy as opposed to restoring democracy. I think we're trying to help mm-hmm. educate people that like this has been happening forever. This is not a Trump thing. Um, yeah, this has right. been a, a GOP policy and, and actually kind of just an American set of policies since the country's founding. And so it's incumbent upon us not just to like get us back to a place where things were good enough for like white Democrats. We have to get to a place where 
we truly have an inclusive democracy. Yeah, and I, I think Michelle Alexander made so many great points in the new Jim Crow, which is just such a fundamental, fantastic read, um, uh, along with so many others that have come out, which is just the system was designed this way, um, you know, by, by the people who, quote unquote, want to make America great again. Right. Uh, you know, and that's why when white people start marching in the streets and we're so proud of themselves in the past couple of years, you know, so many minorities and especially African-Americans were like, hi, we've been doing this for, uh, you know, centuries. Yep. <laughs> um, right. You know, get get off your high horse and, and let us teach you how to do do some work. <laughs> You know, which is so true. And like you said, we can't just get back to status quo because status quo is A, what got us here. And B, was like not working. It was just not working. And I think you saw that in a number of places. Uh, we don't have to get into this, but in a number of places that did vote for Obama and then voted for Trump, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is uh, things were just crumbling in, in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. So what is what is your like your ultimate reach? goal uh i guess maybe your ultimate reach race uh in the next 18 months like what's your hardest sell gonna be mm. i think uh i think texas the texas house so we flipped uh nine seats i believe actually it might have sorry it's tw 12 and nine it might have been 12 and we have nine left i believe that's what oh. it was. Um, Pull it together, Catherine. <laughs> you know, sorry. <laughs> There's a lot of numbers. There's seventy over 7,300 state legislative districts in the U.S. So, uh, you know, kind of figuring out all the all the numbers and tracking wow. them is, is a huge task and one of the reasons why we exist. Um, you know, it's like a lot harder to figure out which state seats to flip than to say, you know, find the most competitive House or Senate district or Senate races. Sure. So, um, yeah, I think Texas, we saw that Democrats completely overperformed expectations there. And um, even if we aren't able to flip the House in 2020, I think it's really important to continue investing. And I would say the same is true for a lot of states where, you know, we tend to look at these threshold states. Like, are we close to um, breaking a supermajority, to, you know, achieving a majority, achieving a trifecta where we have power over all, you know, the branches of the government, that sort of thing. Um, and you know, because those are where you can actually see policy victories and that sort of thing. Um, we tend to focus on those types of states like Pennsylvania or Michigan or Wisconsin, which are totally important. But I think that if we want to build for the long term, we need to invest in states like Texas, Georgia, Arizona, Florida, et cetera. I think that uh, would be great. I mean, just, uh, you know, the progress Texas has made is incredible, but it's it's always going to be a fight. I mean, we saw that with how much money went into Beto, uh, right? Which is, it wasn't enough. Um, it's it's going I, to I be. I might enough. argue. Yeah, I mean, I think that Beto's race was at the point where there where an, a marginal investment in his race just had such diminishing returns, like had such little return. Whereas sure. we had candidates who were running on a budget of fifty or a hundred thousand dollars. And sure. Beto raised, I think, seventy million. So I, I, I agree. I think yes. it is, you know, it's an uphill battle. But one of the things that we're really trying to push people toward is thinking about, like, where will your five dollars or ten dollars and a thousand dollars make the biggest difference? Um, and you can make a really meaningful difference to a state race um, and help them get past the finish line in a way that, like, you know, your five dollars to Beto's campaign isn't going to really make a difference. Um, right. So it's, I, I it's, sex, think, it's sexy, but it isn't going to move it. And 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 I think you're like, you're exactly right. And I know Amanda has been been pushing it as well for run for something, which is which is like 
do we have to have 23 fucking presidential candidates right. sucking up everyone's money for the mm-hmm. next year? And I mean, that's going to start to get cold real fast once they don't make the stage and then further down. But still, it's like there's so many more important things, you know, between between your organization and and hers and others like it and, and swing left. You look at it and just go, oh, my God, your money could go so much farther. And and this comes back to. Uh, you know, the climate change uh, stuff as well, or clean water, clean air. I mean, you're going to see and feel and breathe and drink the impact on a local level. Mm. And that's that's really where it's going to matter. You know, when you go to stir shit up at your city council or you run for a seat for your city council or your state legislature, those are the people that are going to recognize because they know what street you're talking about. Um, yeah, you know, they might I love have that. that you it, should do it, marketing it, for Democrats. Oh, no. I'm <laughs> I so mean, tired. Just to say, you will breathe the air, like, you will breathe the difference. <laughs> or, I don't know, you said it better, but, like, no, it is. You can take it and just run with it. All right, and enjoy great. It. Go get them. Uh, yeah, it just, it, it, it will. And not just, like, in the world's largest naval base type of way, you know? Um, I mean, you look at, the again, the flooding in the Midwest and, and things like that. You look at Flint and go, the people that I, that we put in charge or that I, uh, you know, run for people I talk to, they're going to understand because they're drinking the same water. That is where you're going to see the impact because these people in DC don't give a shit and they don't have time for it. And and they're worried about military budgets and things like that. Anyways. All right. So let me ask you this. It's been, uh, I Googled this 911 days since November 9th, 9th to 2016. Hmm. Um, wow. You, I know <laughs> feels like both, 12 times as many and not <laughs> as long. Um, you understandably, like the rest of the country, but you personally thought that you had locked up uh, at probably at about three o'clock that afternoon, a presidential election. Not so much later that night. Do you, mm-hmm. Catherine, feel now with this pivot like you're on the right path personally? Um, is this a detour to save everything and, and get it, like you said, past the status quo to a better place? I mean, we can get into... Destiny versus free will and get super weird if you want. But, uh, you know, is this, is this where you're going? Is this a stop along the way? What is, what is a continued success look like for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, you know, I hadn't been involved in politics before 2016 and it's kind of crazy that I hadn't been, I'd worked. Um, so I started out my career in, uh, nonprofit consulting and I'd worked with a couple organizations that, you know, I should have probably learned then we're so dependent on the policy landscape and on the kind of economic landscape. Um, one of them provided early childhood education services to homeless children, um, and was thinking about, you know, are there certain policy agendas that they can try to scale up statewide or nationwide to, uh, you know, have a broader reach. Um, and then another organization was essentially providing a type of therapy that has been proven to be really effective in preventing children from having to go into foster care. So essentially helping families resolve problems before it gets, you know, really, really serious. And they were thinking about their expansion strategy and the two inputs that kind of went into it were, one, how badly was the recession affecting um, different states? And uh, two, what did the policy landscape look like in those states and how uh, likely was it that they could um, pitch this, you know, scientifically proven methodology that was also more cost effective to these states that might have been really suffering budget issues and trying to find ways to cut costs and, and be more effective in, in their provision of social services. So that was like my first foray into this. Um, 
they ended up deciding to spend some time um, working on global health and uh, agriculture issues in East Africa, um, also doing work with government, kind of thinking about, you know, how do you take an organization like Partners in Health, where I worked for a year, that had focused for a decade on building hospitals and actually turn it into an organization that can help train local nurses and physicians so that they don't have to be there forever, so that they can really build a, a more solid infrastructure of local uh, doctors and nurses and medical staff on the ground. And, and how do you work with the Ministry of Health to actually get that done? So really, my whole career had been like hinting to me that government <laughs> is going to play a really important role. Like even if you're working at a nonprofit, um, you know, often the, the big goal is to get something implemented at a policy level so that many, many, many more people can um, benefit from the solutions that you've kind of developed or spent time honing. So anyway, uh, I took a lot of detours and I think almost this is like getting me back on the right path. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I, I decided to work on the presidential because I felt really called to do it. It was the summer of 2016 and I was working uh, at McKinsey, uh, and, uh, that summer, you know, two black men were shot by police within a 24 hour period. And I was taking part in these protests and, and thinking about like, what do I, act, what can I actually do to try to, you know, like combine my skills and my heart, <laughs> you know, kind of like, how do I yeah, actually try to sure. attack this problem? And I joined the campaign and I think that, you know, the disappointment of November 9th, led me to dig deeper and try to understand what are some of the more the core and fundamental causes of of how we got here. Um, and so I think that like my career has always been this this process of searching, of trying to solve a problem and realizing that actually the, the causes are much deeper um, or the causes are in a different sector and we have to think about things differently. Um, so that was a really long-winded answer. Uh, no, you know, no. I'm always searching <laughs> and I think that this is, yeah, this is, it feels like I'm on the right path. It's so cool. You were, you were, you know, doing all your prerequisites for, for, and not even, and you didn't even know it. You, you were, you <laughs> became, you were ended up being so prepared by the time you said, fuck it, I'm doing this. That's actually exactly how I felt. There was a moment <laughs> when you know, we started flippable and it was crazy. Like we had this drink on November 9th and then we kept on using the word flippable because we were like, okay, well, you know, we know that we have to flip states, but like, how do we know which states are flippable? How do we know which state seats, right. state districts? Mm -hmm. And then we were like, okay, let's have our placeholder name be flippable and we'll figure mm -hmm. out a better name. And then mm -hmm. I just bought the domain name like two days later. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I like, you know, my friend and I sat on his couch and, you know, came up with a logo and it was just, we were just running so fast. And there was a moment in that like adrenaline filled period where I was like, everything I've done has prepared me for this. Yes. Um, and then you're like, oh my God, actually, I know nothing. And there's so much I have to learn. And, um, you know, I called, I, I had phone calls or meetings with 400 people in my first three months of starting Flippable to actually Damn. really try to immerse myself and learn more and build partnerships and work with people who were truly experts in the space and that sort of thing. So there's always like this you know, oh, like I've learned so much. I've done my prerequisites. And then it's like, okay, but now I'm actually in starting an organization, yeah. working in state government 101. <laughs> and I yeah. have to also just be really humble about that and, and make sure that I'm, uh, you know, doing, doing the right process to get there. So rad. We, we talk about it on the podcast all the time about how, because of how much November 9th sucked, like what, what happened that wouldn't have had the result been the other sure. way. You know, would, would flippable would run right, for something right. would swing left. Like 
you know, all these organizations, 314, you know, would they exist? And would we have such movement? I I don't, I don't know, slash, I don't think so. But um, again, not, this is not to say that what happened uh, is, is needed or or was needed or was good, but um, I'm, I'm glad to, I'm glad this was the response, I guess. Mm. Um, You know, uh, it, it, it hopefully will push things back in towards in the right direction. Yeah. Um, okay, let's get to some action. Uh, uh, we always like to um, make sure that by the end of this, uh, uh, our listeners know what they can actually do, uh, what questions they can be asking um, uh, to to support you and your and your mission uh, with their voice, their vote, and their dollar. So, let's start with their voice. Uh, what what can what are the big actionable questions that we should all be asking of our representatives? Yeah, I mean, I think. I, I would start with like, what are your policy priorities and what are you doing? Like, what have you been called to the state house or the state senate to do? So I think a lot of people just need to get to know their state representatives. It's kind of a weird level of office. Like, I think in some ways I live in New York um, and in some ways, like, you know, the city council and people who are representing me on a, on a hyper local level are more visible. Um, and then obviously like senators and that sort of thing are visible, but the state I feel like state senators and state house reps often be kind of seem like they're under the radar. And so going, looking up who your state rep is and what party they represent and learning more about what they are standing for. And then kind of voicing your interests, I think is, is a good way to just start getting involved. Um, yeah. So, and, and I think, you know, it, you might think, Oh, I live in a super blue state, like, or a super red state, like what can that do? But I do think that like, it's amazing um, how much, uh, like how much more time you can get with a state rep, <laughs> you know, like if you call yeah. up your Senator's office or even your person's office, you're going to get a staffer and they might write down a tally. Um, but you know, when we talk with our candidates, they are hosting office hours at the Starbucks on the road that you drive on every day, you know, like they uh-huh. are there to talk to you, um, not just hosting like a town hall, but actually yeah. speaking individually with their constituents. Um, so I think get to know your state rep or state senator um, and see what they're working on and and what they what you can do because I think you know the, the policies they pass have a huge impact. Um, vote is that next dollar? Yeah, vote. Votes, uh, by the way, I just want to say that's such a great answer. We get all we get a lot of great answers to this question, and they're always very like specific to what we're talking about. I don't think anybody's said yet, just like, go ask like, Hey, who are you? What are you, why are you here? What are you doing? <laughs> that's such a good one. Like, how about that first? That's great. It's like the, it, and, and I think you will be so redeemed by it. It's like the first time you went to, and Brian, I cannot imagine any world that you did this, but the first time you went to office hours with your college professor and you're like, Oh yeah, yeah, office hours. And then you go and you're just like, that was great. That was they're like a human who can who can talk to me, and that's that the whole point of office hours. Exactly what it's like. <laughs> I feel like I in didn't college, do that. Okay, time being afraid of professors and being like, "Oh, I'm wasting time," or whatever, and it was like so rewarding yeah. when I actually had a good conversation with one. Um, yeah, and, and, right. right. It's like you know, you're like, "Oh, professor, fucking fill in the blank." Old white guy doesn't like me, and then you go talk to him, and you're like, "Oh, that was really nice." He just hates 18 year olds because of course he <laughs> right. does like they're really <laughs> obnoxious like but one-on-one i both i i earned some street cred but also like i could have a conversation and you'd be like oh now i get why they do what they do and they teach the way they teach and yeah. why their their positions and and things like that even if you don't fully agree it just god it can make a difference man yeah 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes, you're right. Oh. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it seems so crazy. Um, all right, your vote. Who is up very first for you guys? Who, yeah, who's coming down so, the pipe here? Virginia, if you live in Virginia, uh, definitely vote in this fall's elections. Um, they're not special elections. Virginia just happens to be one of um, five-ish states that has elections in odd years rather than even years. And the other states this year are Mississippi, Louisiana, Kentucky, and New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are states where you can vote this year. And you probably can vote in many states uh, at the municipal level as well. Um, mm-hmm. We like to think that elections happen every four years. They definitely do not. Uh, it's pretty much yeah. every year. Um, so I think that you know we focus on we focus on a set of states. So sometimes our you know our advice about when you can vote may not apply to people to every single person who's listening or who, who's visiting our website. Um, but I do think that kind of leads well into the next um, piece, which is what you can do with your dollar. And mm-hmm. you know, to Hit your us. point before, um, you know, you might not immediately get the relevance of a Virginia state race to you. But when you start thinking about things like um, the ERA, which by one vote was not uh, passed in Virginia, when you start thinking about things like Medicaid expansion, which affect a lot of people, issues like gun control, where guns can very easily cross state borders, issues like the environment, which affect everyone, um, you start to realize that you know states actually even if it's not your state, it makes a huge difference. Um, and obviously on things like redistricting and voting rights, which affect us all sure. because they affect presidential elections and, and congressional elections. So we have we put together something called Fund, which allows you to not have to do the work of going through 7,300 state legislative races to find which ones mm-hmm. are most vulnerable <laughs> and where your money will be spent best. Um, that's what we do <laughs> because we're nerds. And, mm-hmm. um, and so we make it super easy. You can go to our site and donate to the flippable fund. And we allocate those dollars in a really cost-effective and uh, smart way to candidates that are running for state office. So we're focused on Virginia this fall and in a bunch of states that I mentioned earlier in 2020. Um, awesome. And what is your actual URL? Where where are they uh, sending that it money? Is, to uh, mash, make it as easy as... <laughs> easy. Done. Flippable.org. Brian is mistyping that into his uh, browser no, right I now. No, no, I'm not. Two P's. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, th- Quinn. Now I thank you so much. Okay. I got it. Okay. Uh, we're getting close to time here. Um, uh, Catherine, thank you so so much. No one has barged in the conference room, which is not how co working spaces yeah, usually so work. Great. This is really great. Pretty. Hey, who else should we talk to? Who else? Uh, should we get on the line that's out there changing the world every day? Um, you can yeah. always send these to us later, but you know. Uh, scientists, doctors, activists, educators, senators, mayors, astronauts. I mean, you know, <laughs> if they're affecting one of those things we talked about through, mm-hmm. you know, whatever uh, angle, then, then you know, we're, we're really into it. And obviously, always uh, ladies and people of color uh, yeah. are great. Um, our, our guests are 60% ladies. We're very proud of that. Because um, uh, the world has had enough of white guys. So anyways, if you got anybody, please let us know. That would be awesome. I was, yeah, I was thinking about that. Uh, so I went to see Carol Anderson, who wrote the book, One Person, No Vote, Speak. Um, okay. She teaches at Emory, I believe, and uh, is an amazing um, Black woman who wrote a really definitive text about voting rights. Um, and she's, you know, I was thinking about kind of people who have inspired my work recently. <laughs> and sure. um, I think she's someone that you should definitely talk to. You know, she awesome. provides just a really comprehensive history of 
how the vote has been suppressed throughout, you know, all of American history and uh, kind of Michelle Alexander-esque and like how these systems mm-hmm. have been set up deliberately. And also really talks a lot about the impact that has on black and brown bodies. Like this isn't just like a procedural, like electoral yep. law issue. This is an issue of like life and death. So a real inspiration of mine. Awesome. We will, we will jump yeah. right on that for sure. Um, is it lightning round time? I mean, kind of. Cool. We, at some In point, quotes, we should change the name of the, this to, from lightning round. Yeah. Like, <sighs> I don't know, 67 episodes ago. Wow. So much. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, that was, just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just cool today. <laughs> uh, hey, Catherine, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? Um, that's a good question. I grew up um, playing a lot of music. It was like a big thing for my family. And What was your instrument? Um, piano, violin, and singing. So nice. pretty much everything. Wow. I'm part Asian. Yeah, it's like, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> part of the culture. <laughs> Everyone has to start taking piano lessons when they're five. Um, yeah. But yeah, so uh, I remember in seventh grade, I started this quartet. Um, and uh, we played at like middle or we played at elementary schools. And we played at a nursing home because one of my friends, um, one of the girls in the quartet, her grandmother was in a nursing home. And I had organized this, I had like arranged a piece um, to like feature the cello. And I remember we were playing at this nursing home and they were so grateful to like have kids playing music in the nursing home. And they were really grateful. This is such a small thing, but like I had arranged the piece Amazing Grace and I had arranged it so the cello would have the melody. And they were like, um, you know, what was so great about this performance is that a lot of the seniors in the room had begun to lose hearing and they had lost the ability to hear some higher pitched notes. But when they heard a lower pitched melody that like really uh. resonated with them. And it was just like this little thing where I was like, I hadn't done it and, you know, deliberately or anything. I just wanted to give my friend who played cello, like a little bit more of an interesting uh, melody yeah, right. to play. Sure. And, but like that level of impact where it was like, this really made a meaningful difference in these people's day. you know, it was like one, you know, a bunch of 13 year olds playing at a nursing home. Um, <laughs> that, I don't know. I think that, that kind of was interesting. Cause I'd always kind of seen music as like, Oh, I have to go to lessons. Like I have to like, it's sure. like my homework, my mom makes me right. practice all the time, that sort of thing. But um, I don't know that th- those types of moments that are more like around sharing something culturally, as opposed to just like the type of work I do now, which is, um, more political, I think have stuck with me. Do you still play music at all? I do. I sing in a choir in New York. Nice. Whoa. That's cool. That's rad. We're going to have to put that in the show notes. Yeah. We're going to find you. Um, <laughs> I love the cello, by the way. It's a beautiful instrument. That deep mm-hmm. sound. Did it's you play cool. music at all? I played the trumpet in fourth grade. We're going to put that in the show notes. <laughs> We're going to get some video. We're calling mom for video of that. Perfect. For sure. We'll put you up against um, the quartet that Catherine arranged on her own. I'm sure it was great. Um, Come on, that's awesome. Uh, you know, we do such a shitty job of respecting and paying attention to and listening to um, older folks in in this country, uh, and not receiving the wisdom that they are very mm-hmm. excited to share with us. That that's that's always special. It it makes such a difference to them to actually be considered. Um, that's super cool. Uh, who is someone in your life that's positively impacted your work in the past six? months and you cannot say Brian. <laughs> um well I so Carol Anderson was, I was like say, Carol? Right, I was right, thinking right. about 
Um, A couple other people, Theta Scotchpole has done some really interesting work. She's an academic at Harvard and she studied the Tea Party and now she's studying the resistance and and how money flows and that sort of thing, which is really interesting. Mm. And then Jane Mayer, who wrote Dark Money, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I had read portions of the book before, but I sat down and read like all 600 pages about the Koch brothers and... It was so eye-opening and it really helped me think about like, how do I do that head part of the work even better? Like, how do I make sure that every dollar that we spend, because we're up against a behemoth, how do I make sure that every single dollar we spend on progressive causes is spent as well as possible? Yeah. I mean, reading that book is like, again, not to make like another Star Wars analogy, but, but you know, you're, you're part of the resistance and then all of a sudden, you know, 10,000 empire ships show up and you're like, oh, that's what we're actually up against. Like that's, that's the deal. Um, and you realize the full extent of how they're applying themselves and doing it very well is, is, is crazy. And you have to use, start using your head in that condition, right? You have to be as impactful as humanly possible. Totally. Go ahead, Brian. Catherine, when you are overwhelmed by all of this, what do you do? What do you do specifically for, you know, what's your dealing with your time? What's your self care? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like my self-care used to be like more productive. Um, <laughs> maybe when I wasn't so overwhelmed, like I'd be like, I'd go for a run or like I'll mm-hmm. go sing in my choir. And now it's like a lot of TV. Um, I recently binged Pen15 and I think I have like a special place in my heart for shows about female friendship. Um, Broad mm-hmm. City recently ended. I love Insecure. Yeah. Um, I mm-hmm. think there's just something about like, uh, you know, strong female friendships uh, that like are celebrated as an important relationship um, that, you know, isn't just about women being dependent on men. So that's kind of my thing, right? (laughs) There is a, uh, there's a movie coming out uh, soonish, maybe by the time this comes out, probably called book smart. It's it's the first movie directed by Olivia Wilde. um, And my friend, uh, Katie Silberman, friend of the podcast, wrote it. Um, and she wrote the Netflix romantic comedy last year called Set It Up that was great. Um, but it's basically the, the very lazy way of describing it, which I'll do here, is uh, it's the ladies version, 2019 ladies version of uh, what was the Jonah Hill, Michael Sarah? Super bad. Super bad. Um, uh... Two girls on, you know, the night before graduation, but it is they invert it in every way possible. And it's such a wonderful, uh, such a wonderful love letter to that age and girls at that age and how hard it is and complicated it is. And, uh, but at the same time, how beautiful and fun those relationships can be. It's great. So I think you totally. might enjoy that. Yeah. It's just uh, a couple weeks. It's also just hilarious. Up. Um, awesome. Uh, how do you consume the news, Catherine? I used to be on Twitter a lot more. I'm trying to, you know, like everyone in 2019, I'm trying to um, limit my social media use and and really just like my smartphone addiction. Um, So I'm also trying to do more primary source reading, like just actually reading the thing rather than like someone's 280 character, um, (laughs) like derivative hot take of another summary of the thing, you know? Um, and yeah. Yeah, actually like the, um, when you interviewed, uh, Rihanna gun, right. About uh, like how she, or she said something about like, just read the green new deal, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, um, yeah. which I think is, you know, I, I think we like get so far away from actually just like, what's the source material? Like I'm, I haven't read the Mueller report yet, but like, <laughs> I think that we all could do a little bit of a better job of like, especially given 
this era of like, is there any truth? Is everything just spin? Um, will we ever get to a sense of like journalistic objectivity again? Or was that always an illusion? I think that like, um, like the historian in me is like urging me to go back to those source documents. Uh, that seems like uh, the right thing to do. We're, we're big fans of first principles and facts and, and things like that. It, uh, that's, that's where it starts. Uh-huh. All right. If you could Amazon one book, Amazon Prime, sorry, one book to Donald Trump, <laughs> what would it be? Um, this, this is the question that I like most cheated on. Cause I was thinking about <sighs> like, is he, is he going to read it and will he actually benefit from the lessons in a book? So like I'm reading right. like these truths right now by Jill Lepore, um, so good. You know, which is like such a good history of the U S it's like actually comprehensive and centers, you know, the voices of women and people of color and that sort of thing. But like, I don't think he would take anything from that because I don't think he would like have the capacity to absorb it. So then I started thinking about like, could I just strike fear into his heart? Like, is, is that actually the way to go? Um, like, could I just like, like some sort of like morality tale or some sort of like, you know, just desserts like lesson that like, you can't uh-huh. get away with this. Like this will uh-huh. come back and bite you. Could I like, could I um, like shock him into, uh, acting differently. So then I was thinking about like, I actually studied Russian lit for undergrad. Um, and I thought about crime and punishment and like the idea mm-hmm. that like this guy commits a crime and is haunted by it the rest of the book. And like, it's mm-hmm. you know, 700 pages of like inner conversations in his head and paranoia and, and that sort of thing. So that's kind of, I think that's what I would pick out for him. Just like a fun that's little a good one. I like that. <laughs> right. It's, it's coming. And I mean, it's kind of what everybody says when they get so worried about, I mean, understandably about do we impeach or not or, or what was in the Mueller report and all this. And, and the Southern District of New York is like, it's fine because the second he gets out of office, we're going to ruin him for the rest of his life. Yeah. Uh, and that's, uh, you you know, you can't escape it. You can't pardon anybody. It's like, eh, we're just sitting here waiting for you. And yeah, crime and punishment is a great, <laughs> great example of that. I can imagine the internal conversations that go on inside there or maybe just none at all i don't know yeah um, and also none. just like making him read russian literature and making him read like sure. a really long book would would just be gratifying in its own way yeah no i like i like the uh the schadenfreude there from you that's nice <laughs> um all right brian bring it home here last one uh hey where can where can our listeners follow you online keep up with you and what you're doing yeah um as i mentioned i've been a little less uh, active on the social medias these days but um i am Mm -hmm. at cv zero those are just my initials and then zero on twitter um not to be confused with cvo which is actually um a guy who was running for secretary of state in new hampshire oh Connecticut, um, uh, (laughs) Democrat, which is good. So (laughs) I was going to say, this could be so much worse. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I feel so bad for people who share a name with like a terrible person. Um, I I feel like you always see that on Twitter. Like a week later, someone has to go, hi, my name is not William Barr. Oh God. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Uh, and I'm assuming flippable is at flippable or something like that. It's at flip, if you search flippable, you'll find it. We are we're, we're figuring out how to get the flippable handle. <laughs> it's a little oh bit boy. of a trademark issue right now, but um, but uh. flippable underscore org on Twitter. Yeah. Well, let us know. Brian's happy to go rough somebody up. <laughs> it's no problem. It's no problem. He just he needs payment and coffee. That's it. <laughs> um, Catherine, yeah. thank you so much uh, for your time today for barricading that room uh, so well. Uh, and for all that you're doing out there, it's, um, it is, um, you know, t- turning this 
place around. And and obviously we got a long way to go, but we would be uh, shit out of luck without you guys. So so thank you for having. Wait wait, what is the drink you had that night? What is your drink? Oh, you know what? I think I just had a beer because we were driving. So it was just like it was literally just Goodness. one drink. The drinks that the drinks that we had the night before like on the 8th when we were watching the results come in, uh, that was a lot of drinks and it was mostly whiskey. Um, <laughs> yeah, yep. yeah, that was, that was a Different lot. And it was story. weird because I, Beer I, doesn't cut almost, it that night. Uh-uh. I had almost never been drunk and sad at the same time. Like, I feel like I'm usually like more of a social and happy drinker. So it's a very right. weird situation. Um, very, very weird situation to be in. It's a weird ass night. It's not a great one. Yeah. yeah, I was on the West Coast and attempting to put my children to bed and we were three hours behind and it was oh. <laughs> it's not great. Um, mm. Anyways, yes, I joined you in whiskey. Uh, this was awesome. Thank you again. Thank you so keep, much. Keep doing what you do. We Thank will you. we will push this out as much as we can and uh, hopefully we run into each other at some point here. Um, yeah. Awesome. We will talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. Thanks to our incredible guest today and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. (laughs) And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.